Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. My guest today spent 18 years as chancellor of IUPUI before serving a year as interim president of Indiana University. Back before he did any of that, he was a fed. His name is Gerald L. Bebko. And today, we're going to talk about his time with the Bureau and why he left to pursue a career in education. To set things up, I asked Jerry why he chose to go to law school. I had graduated from uh, undergraduate school at Northern Illinois University, and uh, I was uh, 24 years old, and I was uh, choosing between uh, uh, going in the Army, going in the Marines, going in the Air Force, or going to college, mm -hmm. and I uh, chose going to law school, going for, continuing uh, to go to college by going to law school. Uh, it turned out to be more dangerous to me uh, than it might have been um, if I had gone directly to Vietnam uh, at the time. Uh, but uh, I, I ended up then going to law school, finished law school. I was at that point uh, old enough so that uh, I was no longer an eligible age for the draft. Uh, but uh, while I was in my first job out of law school, um, I went into a, uh, a deferred position. <clears throat> uh, I went into the FBI as an agent, and the uh, agents were in national security work. It was an exempt category. I had my choice of going after law school, going into the Judge Advocate General score, or to the uh, Officer's Candidate School. I was really interested in the Judge Advocate General's assignment, but uh, the FBI came up first, so I took it. and. Uh, went into the FBI in June of 1965. What did you do with the FBI? Well, my first assignment was to Mississippi in 1965 and 66. And uh, we did primarily civil rights work there. Right. Uh, kind of the height of the civil rights movement right there. It was, it was the very peak of the civil rights movement. In fact, I think uh, in the uh, latter part of my assignment down there, I was a participant in one of the most uh, celebrated and uh, I would say, concluding big events of the civil rights movement in the South. There were lots of other things that took place. But I was there uh, in the uh, uh, summer of 1966, and uh, I was working on the Gulf Coast, and I got a call from uh, the uh, headquarters office, which was in Jackson, and they said, uh, go to the uh, airport, and there'll be a plane there, and we want you on a uh, in the northern part of the state uh, as soon as possible. And uh, I and a couple of other guys uh, from our uh, resident agent corps uh, arrived in that afternoon. It was the afternoon when James Meredith was shot while he was leading what he called the March Against Fear. He was going to march from Memphis all the way down uh, through the middle of the state to Jackson. Uh, they figured it would take a couple of weeks at least. Uh, and uh, he was on his second day of the march, and uh, a crazed uh, hardware store employee from Memphis shot him. And uh, he was pretty seriously injured, but not uh, uh, to the point where he was, his life was in danger. Uh, he was taken back to Memphis to stay in a hospital for a while, then was taken uh, back to New York, which was his home at the time. He was a student at Columbia University Law School. 
as you may remember, James Meredith was the first African-American to enroll at the University of Mississippi in 1963, I believe. And uh, it was accompanied by violence and National Guard presence, U.S. Marshals all over the place. Uh, and uh, he successfully, with uh, uh, personal strength that was something to be admired, he entered uh, the University of Mississippi. Uh, he was in advanced admission with advanced standing because he had uh, gotten a couple of years of college education in the Air Force where he had served, and also at uh, Jackson State University, which is a, an historically black college. And uh, he went and he finished his degree in the uh, prescribed amount of time. Um, I think he uh, changed the patterns of the South and the whole country uh, significantly by his enrollment and his successful uh, uh, graduation from the Ole Miss program. Absolutely. What was what was the general feeling in the area when you got called over to, well, first, what did they call you up to do with the march? And then what was the feeling around the... Some of us were assigned to uh, complete the investigation of the murder or the attempted murder. Uh, because uh, we wanted to make sure that there was a good case against the person who pulled the trigger. And it was pretty easy to do. I don't think it took very long. He didn't, I don't think he left the scene. So uh, somebody had grabbed hold of him, local police or something. Uh, so the case was pretty easy to make. But the largest uh, range of responsibilities was to ensure that there was no further violence and to make sure that... Uh, the march was peaceful and that uh, it was successful in, a, in the sense that people should have a right to express their views about national government policy, state government policy. And uh, the goal was to make sure that it was a peaceful and, and high-minded demonstration and didn't degenerate into violence. Um, there was a great worry of that because walking in a, a march uh, a format was dangerous when there were only a few people on the march, but the uh, Meredith cause and, and, the, and the march itself got uh, international publicity, and people from all over the world came to be on the march. They wanted to join. I would say that uh, on an average day, there might have been 500 or 1,000 people, uh, but toward the end of the march, uh, I think there were 15,000 people marching when they arrived in Jackson and went to the state capitol where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, a whole series of other civil rights leaders spoke from the steps of the uh, capitol building. Well, wow, that's uh, quite a few people. That, I mean, that's, that's a monumentous event that you were able to help out with or take part in. It was, and all of us who were involved were uh, a little bit proud of the fact that nothing did happen after the initial shooting. And we think that was because of uh, the uh, careful handling of informant information, uh, people who were inclined to uh, be violent or disruptive uh, were identified in advance and uh, deterred from uh, uh, carrying out any kind of attack on the march. Uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, something that the government uh, should have been very proud of because it was a it was a peaceful march from that point on. There were some moments of tension, uh, but, but it was by and large a peaceful march. The one thing that was not peaceful was that on one occasion in one of the uh, 
uh, latter stages of the uh, march nearing Jackson, uh, there was a town that did not want the marchers to camp in one public park. They wanted to go in the other public park. And the marchers uh, said, if they're both public parks, we should choose which one we use. Or There was some argument along those lines. And the police, state police were ordered to remove people from the, uh, the camping grounds that, that were prohibited. And they did uh, use tear gas. Uh, to remove the people. I was a part of that. I was tear-gassed a little bit, not much. Uh, but uh, in, in the final analysis, it was not violent. And uh, it was a reasonable order of the city because the other place was much more uh, spacious and we could accommodate people better. I think it, I don't recall exactly, but I think it was the the alternate uh, grounds was a park and the grounds that they were choosing to uh, use was a public school grounds. And uh, I think that uh, the town leaders thought it was better if they were in the park. And uh, I don't know whether there was a right or wrong to this question, but the city said, we have gone far enough, we can't do any more. And they used tear gas to remove the marchers. Um, there was a lot of media coverage of that uh, across the country. In fact, uh, uh, parenthetically, uh, let me say that the media organizations chipped in and rented a stakeback truck. It's a big truck, uh, but with the, the cargo area surrounded by stakes so that you could look out and you, the back was open all the time. And uh, this was for all the cameras. Uh, when the march was underway, there were probably five or six media cameras going all the time. Uh, I think it was partly to make sure that they had a record for history. Uh, it was partly to make sure that if something violent happened, they had it on film and it would be worth a fortune to the media. Uh, so uh, that's that's one of the downsides of, uh, of uh, news, uh, news coverage of events like this. Uh, the, the other thing that was a little close to uh, disruptive was in the towns that were visited, uh, there were usually issues that uh, African-Americans wanted to have aired in some way. And uh, they would describe those to the leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. himself and many other uh, leaders of the civil rights movement of that era. <clears throat> they uh, would <clears throat> explain to Martin Luther King or Jose Williams, also from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that there had been some... Uh, retaliation against uh, people who were active in the civil rights movement, such as uh, uh, their mortgage loan was canceled or called, or their uh, uh, job at the, uh, one of the plantations or in one of the businesses in the community uh, had diminished, uh, they weren't paid as much, and they thought these things were in uh, response to their own assertiveness about their civil rights. and. Uh, so when they went into a town and camped overnight, there would be lots of merriment, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, speeches and, and a lot of uh, positive uh, uh, conversations among people. But then they would have snake dance and a lot of things uh, that were a little more disconcerting to the local public. And uh, 
at the time this was going on, usually there was somebody from one of the civil rights organizations talking to the town leadership in one of their buildings nearby, and they would say, this is the time uh, when you should face up to the facts of the future, uh, and this is the time when you should concede that some of the things you were doing were wrong and you should try to make amends. And of course, uh, if you made that argument without these snake dances and other acts of uh, uh, protest going on in, in the town square, I think it would have been a lot harder argument to make. But with all that going on, oftentimes the people in town would say, okay. Yeah, <laughs> they just fall in line. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I hate to interrupt this interview, but before we go any further, I should mention, on top of all of his other accomplishments, Jerry is also a former dean at our sponsor, the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law, who are proud to have once again been selected to Pre-Law Magazine's Best Value School List. Find out more about IU McKinney's reputation for excellence at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Jerry spent a total of about 15 months working in Mississippi before being assigned to Newark, New Jersey. I stayed in uh, Newark for about a year. Uh, the first couple of months were in Newark. We were assigned to the Newark division. And then they transferred me to what's called a resident agency uh, they have these all over the country, uh, there are or many of them in Mississippi. Uh, if you have a, an FBI office with a field office, which in Mississippi was Jackson, uh, they had agents who were working on cases, like in uh, um, Greenville, Mississippi, where I spent some time on the uh, Mississippi River up in the Delta. Um, the uh, cases had to be worked day after day after day after day after day. And if there were uh, agents that were based in, in Jackson, they'd have to drive up every day or maybe stay in a motel during the week. And they saw if there were investigations that had to go on over months uh, and even years, uh, they would be better off saying, well, let's set up a resident agency in that town so that they have uh, more equipment, they have an office to go to, they have... Uh, other, more relations with the local people because they're renting. And uh, and uh, so I think uh, that uh, uh, I know Greenville was a resident agency. They had lots of cases up there in the Delta. There were all kinds of civil rights cases, including what we call intimidation cases where people were intimidated uh, in making, to, making uh, an application to register to vote or things like that. And there were a lot of cases there. So they had probably five or six agents assigned to Greenville. They lived there full time. Now, not many of them stayed that long because you could only keep Northerners in Greenville, Mississippi so long before they uh, would decide they wanted to take another job. Uh, so uh, there was a rotation there. I was there in Greenville for about two months. And from there? I went to uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, which was like going to heaven compared to uh, <laughs> Greenville, Mississippi. It was on the Gulf Coast, and the Gulf Coast is completely different than the rest of the state. Uh, the Gulf Coast is dominated by uh, federal government activity. You have all kinds of big uh, military base there, uh, Keesler Air Force Base, with thousands of uh, people at that time, many thousand people uh, assigned. They had <clears throat> Engel Shipyard, which was a national defense uh, ship shipbuilding company, uh, they had uh, the uh, John Stennis uh, Space Center and NASA 
base installation in Pickyland, Mississippi, why they would put it there. You could only understand if you understand the Congress. Uh, anyway, they named, they named it for one of the Mississippi senators. Um, but it was a, a magnificent futuristic building with all kinds of uh, state-of-the-art uh, rocketry and uh, propulsion systems and all that, uh, but with uh, grounds that were recaptured from the native foliage of Mississippi, and, and they created a big lawn in front of the uh, space center. Uh, but uh, within only a matter of two weeks or three, three weeks after they had finished the landscaping work, uh, the place was uh, covered with warthogs who lived there before <laughs> the space center got there. Yeah. <laughs> Can't beat Mother Nature. No. So then I went to Newark and, and I went to Hackensack, New Jersey, uh, which was interesting because it was a resident agency out of the Newark office. Um, but it had a huge amount of business uh, that involved the FBI, a range from uh, 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 double agents, uh, 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 Soviet espionage. Uh, it was really part of New York City, but it was across the Hudson River from New York City. Uh, in fact, I, I lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and it was closer to many things in Manhattan than uh, others who lived uh, further south in Manhattan. Our office was at 69th and 3rd Avenue, and it was really easy to get from Fort Lee, which was on the GW Bridge, over into uh, the east side of Manhattan. Uh, so it was a transfer, but uh, it was uh, uh, not much of a transfer because I worked on uh, truck hijacking cases in New Jersey and Newark, and uh, uh, in the scope of the Hackensack Resident Agency, there were all kinds of truck terminals. So it was an activity that was intense. Uh, but then I went into New York, and uh, they assigned me, because I had this experience, to what they call the tailgate squad in New York City. What's that? That's the squad that works on nothing but truck hijackings. Straight? There's an entire squad that does that? Uh, All kinds of truck hijacking. Back in those days, there might have been four or five a day in the New York metro area. Did that have to do with organized crime, or was yes, it just organized okay. crime? The uh, most of the cases involved uh, the gang that was involved, uh, either uh, hiring or paying off the driver of a truck that had valuable cargo. The driver would take it to a certain spot that was not unexpected you know, a, a, a cafeteria or a restaurant or something, and then uh, close the door and leave. Somebody else would come along and steal the truck, drive it to another place where it would be parked on the street, and that person would leave. And a third person would come along and uh, take the truck to the drop. It would be unloaded at the drop, and then the truck would be taken out to a, another place altogether, parked on the street and left. Um, and uh, all that took place in a relatively short period of time. Um, it was organized crime in the sense that uh, there were systems for getting the uh, swag, as they called it, uh, transferred from the drop to the places where they're going to sell it through the underground uh, distribution systems they had that would end up being uh, would end up in resulting in things being sold in regular stores. Uh, it was very efficient. They, they were pretty good business people. Um, but uh, that's how I uh, decided to leave the FBI because I was out of surveillance, and that's why my voice is hoarse all these years later. Um, we had all kinds of surveillance vehicles because the people we were conducting surveillances on were very smart, 
and and worldwide, they knew everything that was going on in New York, and they could spot uh, a, a police uh, a surveillance a mile away. So we had to do our best to avoid detection, and we had all kinds of vehicles. We had uh, taxi cabs, which were fun to drive in New York. Uh, sure. But you had to have two agents, one in the front seat, one in the back. Oh, Otherwise, yeah. People flagging you they'd down. They'd be flagging you down all the time, and if you pass them by, they shake their fist at you. <laughs> uh, and uh, you couldn't have the citizen band radios we had in those days because if anyone saw a passenger in a taxi cab on a two-way radio, they would it would burn the surveillance. Yeah. So they had a little button on the floor in the driver's uh, seat. Uh, you could activate the microphone, which was above the driver's head. And in the back seat, the passenger had a button on the back deck, and the microphone was uh, over the passenger's head. And we're talking the 60s here, right? It was the 60s. This is straight out of James Bond. Well, it wasn't <laughs> as uh, sophisticated, but uh, yeah, James Bond movies were uh, in the theaters at that time. Yeah. Um, anyway, our, uh, and we had motorcycles and United Parcel Trucks. They were the greatest uh, surveillance vehicles because... You can see the United Parcel truck anywhere. Oh, absolutely. And nobody ever, it, it doesn't even enter your consciousness. It's yeah, part of the background. So we had UPS trucks and motorcycles. One of the motorcycles broke down, and we had to put it in the back of the UPS truck. And then we had to put two agents with the motorcycle in the back. Otherwise, when we were making turns, it would bounce all over the place. Uh, and uh, we were going along in that state when... Uh, we were making a left turn just off the Long Island Expressway in Queens. A car came along trying to beat us into the intersection. The car was clearly wrong uh, and uh, hit the front of the truck. But it uh, pushed the front end of the truck, destabilized the truck. I was in the shotgun part of the truck. And I was thrown out on the street, and the weight of the truck, the, the movement of the weight, tipped it over, and it landed right on me. It hit my chin, my throat and my chest. I was lucky that it, the main weight landed on my chest because that's the uh, nature, Mother Nature's armor, armor plate. And uh, um, they lifted up the truck, dragged me out. The people in the back with the motorcycle were most frightened because um, gasoline was leaking and they couldn't get out the back door of the truck because in package delivery vans, the packages have no need for a back door. Mm -hmm. You could open it from the outside, right. but not the inside. And uh, uh, they got out, they went out the top and uh, lifted the truck, pulled me out. And uh, about four months after that, I retired. I thought, uh, it's understandable. What, what could be more dangerous than this? I found out later on when I went to work for uh, universities that uh, presiding at faculty meetings can yeah. be just about <laughs> as dangerous. That's going to do it for this part of our conversation. When we come back in two weeks, we'll talk about Jerry's transformation from federal agent to professor. But before we go, our sponsors at IU McKinney School of Law invite you to hear from Associate Dean and Professor of Law, Karen Bravo, and her co-author, Jenna Martin of West Virginia University College of Law, when they speak about their new book, The Business and Human Rights Landscape in the Wynn courtroom at the law school on December 3rd. See the website for more information and to sign up, mckinneylaw.iu.edu.
Listeners, thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Is It Legal? <laughs>